of America and the Gateway to the West. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Congratulations to college football champs Michigan defeating Washington tonight. And later tonight, prophecy. Here's what's happening. Israel is carrying out an unprecedented wave of deadly strikes in Syria, targeting cargo trucks, infrastructure, and people involved in Iran's weapons lifeline to its proxies in that region. At least 20 people injured, some critical as a result of a gas explosion at a historic downtown Fort Worth, Texas hotel. The first call came in at 3.32 p.m., followed by multiple calls reporting the type of explosion at the Sandman Hotel. They think it was some kind of gas line. Alaska Airlines and United Airlines have canceled hundreds of flights on Monday due to the temporary grounding of some Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft. The FAA ordered the grounding after a 737 MAX 9 operated by Alaska Airlines lost a door plug panel in mid-flight on Friday. It just blew off. The aircraft bound for Ontario, California, returned safely to Portland, Oregon. No serious injuries were reported, and fortunately nobody was sitting by that seat that the door blew out. The door has been found. It was found in a backyard in Portland. Apple said its Vision Pro augmented reality headset will hit the U.S. market on Feb 2nd. The Apple Vision Pro, first unveiled last summer, will come with a starting price tag of $3,499. That's a lot of money. Advances in mind decoding technologies are raising some hopes and some worries. Here's Lauren Weinstein to explain. Lauren, what's going on? Yeah, so last week when I was discussing the pluses and minus of, uh, minuses of various tech, I, I very briefly mentioned in passing the issue of how the rather science fiction concept of what we, re, what we could quite reasonably call mind-reading machines is moving toward becoming a reality much more quickly than most people realize. And I thought it would be interesting to get into a, a bit more detail on that tonight. Um, and in fact, this work has been proceeding rapidly for a number of years, and advanced AI systems to analyze brain data are certain to move things along even more rapidly. And the issues involved are starting to concern some of the researchers who are actually doing the work in this field, to the extent that we're even hearing talk now of ideas like how to create a bill of rights regarding the use of brain data of these sorts. Now, we're heading toward a situation that's going to be a very, very big deal, because these technologies that might be used to help paralyzed persons and others with physical limitations interact with the world in all kinds of ways, could ultimately also be applied as new sorts of lie detectors that could be used for both beneficial and incredibly abusive purposes, digging into private thoughts, used for loyalty checks by abusive governments, all kinds of possibilities. Now, at first glance, at first glance one might think that these kinds of devices would be impossible. But the key to their development is what's called functional MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. And one of the ways that this is advancing is that if you observe and train your system through functional MRI to learn how a person's brain reacts when seeing or hearing various videos, other images, written texts, all kinds of different inputs, it's becoming increasingly possible to then come back later and detect when a person is thinking about those same input stimuli or how their brain reacts when shown those stimuli or similar kinds of stimuli, and those reactions are normally completely involuntary. So already there have been experiments where words and phrases and images have been identified this way 
by pattern matching against the original functional MRI training, not only during full wakefulness, but even during dreaming. Now, to be clear, currently these efforts mostly require very large machines to do the functional MRI brain scans, and the pattern decoding is relatively rudimentary right now. But again, it's advancing very quickly, and as I said, it's likely that AI systems are going to supercharge these developments. Now, if society follows its usual historical patterns with new technologies, it will most likely sit on its hands and do little until this tech is so far along that obvious problems affecting society from this technology are already taking place, and then there will be arguing and delays while the situation gets worse and worse. Or, perhaps this time, since we know that this technology is coming and will be extremely powerful and controversial, we'll get ahead of the game for once in terms of figuring out how it should be controlled for the benefit of society. But uh, don't count on it. I love it. Lauren, we'll talk to you next week with another great topic. Thank you. Americans have been leaving big cities in droves in recent years, and now a new study is giving older adults another reason to move on. Scientists from Washington State University have found that even small, seemingly insignificant differences in the availability of green and blue spaces across urban areas may contribute to improved mental and physical health. In other words, the more nature is near your home, the better you're likely to feel. A U.S. lunar lander that launched from Florida on Monday in hopes of becoming the first American craft to touch down on the moon in more than 50 years is now suffering from a critical loss of propellant, putting its mission in jeopardy. Here's Dr. Sky Stephen Cates with much more. Stephen, it's not going to wow. get problems with this thing, huh? Well, absolutely. Interesting backstory on this. The space mission that we're calling to the moon from Astrobotics, it's a moon lander called Peregrine. And the successful launch of the United Launch Alliance's Vulcan Centaur rocket, George, made its way to space, as you were talking about. The astrobotic lunar lander Peregrine was moving along fine, but shortly into the flight, the payload lander ran into trouble, deploying from the second stage of that rocket. Well, the lander failed to get proper orientation to face their solar panels to the sun. But, George, in addition to this, as you mentioned before, a loss of propulsion from leaking propellant, well, maybe there's a way to salvage this mission. We don't know. But Peregrine was to be or will be the first ever moon landing by a private company. But it may be too early to tell if the February 23rd lunar landing is off. But how about this? It would be headed to a new region on the moon. The International Astronomical Union has the naming rights to this region on the moon. The lunar landing region is known as Sinus Viscositatis. In English, it means and translates to the Bay of Stickiness. Go figure. But, George, we move on to the story of Russian space dogs launched into space, animals in space. How about this? Animals, of course, have paved the way to space before humans. But here's a story that's interesting. Russia launched many dogs into suborbital space, but one of the most famous was a female Russian dog known as Laika. They found her on the street. And she became one of the great Soviet science dogs into space. Her name in Russian means Barker. That was occurring back on November 3rd, 1957, to low Earth orbit. But sadly, she died in space on the Sputnik 2. And of course, a memorable part of the Soviet space program. But other dogs, how about this? Belka and Strelka also orbited the Earth but survived. Now, Strelka gave birth to six puppies, one named Kushinka 
which was a gift to President Kennedy from Nikita Khrushchev, and now many siblings are probably still out there. But simply this, many more animals, insects, fish, mice, chimpanzees have paved the way to space and human spaceflight. But George, we move on as we rapidly move to the conclusion here this morning. The early universe was filled with spiral galaxies. Galaxies for over billions of years, we find out that there is only 60% of all galaxies that are spiral, like the Milky Way. But they're thought to form by collisions with other galactic systems. But here's an interesting sideline. New data from the James Webb Telescope tells us that spiral galaxies have been forming way too soon after the Big Bang, like two billion years. So it's forcing us to rethink our whole concept of the Big Bang theory that's been almost so sacred for so long. Wrapping it up in the live sky, dark skies return, of course, with the new moon on the 11th. The moon and Venus were very close in the early morning sky, but also if you look into the morning sky on Tuesday morning, the moon would be very close to the inner planet Mercury, an interesting sight in the southeast just before dawn. More information at theskylive.com. We love the emails, drskyshow at gmail.com. And what are we saying? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Simply, I'm your navigator on the highway to the heavens. And, George, only some 89 days till the great total solar eclipse. Next week, I hope to talk about ways to safely view it, things that you can do. And, of course, we say hello, like last week, to our new listener, 12-year-old Benjamin. What is he, George, getting closer to being an astronomer? You got it. to us here on Coast. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Sky. appreciate it. In a moment, Sean Patrick Hazlitt back with us with his series of Weird War stories. His latest is Weird World War China. He's next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Sean Patrick Hazlitt back with us. Army veteran, writer, editor, finance executive in the San Francisco Bay Area. He holds a B.A. degree in history, a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Stanford University, a master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he won the 2006 Policy Analysis Exercise Award for his work on policy solutions to Iran's nuke weapons program. And under the guidance of future Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter, he holds a MBA from the Harvard Business School as well. Sean, welcome back to the program. How have you been? I've been great. Thank you for inviting me, George. I appreciate it. Your series of books, Weird World Wars, ends with this this one on China. Tell me the about the title, Weird World War. So the series of books are an anthology with several different science fiction, fantasy, and horror writers that explore the theme, what if the United States fought China in a world war, but that world war would involve paranormal characteristics. And each of the stories kind of covers something that um, is you know, very different from each writer's perspective. I would hope that if there is a world war, it would be paranormal. It would be easier than what could transpire, don't you think? Well, it depends, right? Uh, you know, if once we get to the kind of wild cards of things that could happen, one strategy that the Chinese could use is what kind of the UFO community calls catastrophic disclosure. And by doing something like that, you know, just say that they've recovered a craft or they have some sort of a you know, relationship or reliance with non-human intelligences. And the United States has known about this for decades. And as the arsenal of democracy that prides itself on free and fair and honest disclosure to its citizens, 
has not been so honest. Something like that could be damaging to U.S. internal stability. I mean, it's not the only thing that they could do, but it's one of many wild card scenarios that they could put into play that involves a paranormal uh, element. John, despite the fact that uh, China is a communist nation, uh, it parallels us in terms of capitalism. They just seem to be as capitalistic as anybody in, in, in on the planet right now. But there's something else afoot here. Why aren't we getting along with China? Is it all over Taiwan and that possibility? Yeah, that seems to be the most, uh, the biggest potential hotspot in 2024, particularly in 2024. So just as the background of things that are, you know, just painting the picture about what's going on, there is a source of significant global political instability. 2024 is going to be the biggest voting year in history. Some 4.2 billion people or more than half of humanity live in the 76 countries that are scheduled to hold elections. And one of the first elections this year is on January 13th in Taiwan. Now, there's a party that wins. It's the Democratic Progressive Party that the Chinese aren't exactly too keen. Now, they're in the incumbent party, but already the Chinese have made statements suggesting Xi, for, in, for instance, at the very beginning of the year, talked about reunification being inevitable. Um, there are other folks that are that uh, Chinese officials who have warned the Taiwanese to, to make sure that they make the quote-unquote right decision in the election. And there's also been reports, at least four since the beginning of the year, of these Chinese spy balloons that are hovering over sensitive spots on the, um, you know, the on Formosa, the main island in, of the Taiwan Taiwanese nation. So there's, you know, there's a lot of things, not to mention that the U.S. is also distracted from other regional conflicts, primarily Russia-Ukraine and the Israeli Palestinian conflicts. And then to kind of add insult to injury, what the media is not really focused on, but the U.S. has not ramped up its munitions production. So just to give you a, a one data point, the U.S. is only producing about 15 to 20 armored vehicles a month, called, you know, most, many of which are M1 tanks. But they can ramp up to 33 per month, which sounds, you know, sounds okay, Right, but you're still talking less than 200 a year. By comparison, the Russians may have produced as many as 2,100 tanks in 2023. Wow. So we're involved in all these conflicts, but we're not. We haven't really recharged the industrial base to handle anything that breaks out like this. Is Russia in a position, Sean, to back up China if China decides to take Taiwan and we get involved as well? I don't think they could do anything. Directly, the only thing that I think would have the biggest impact on a potential scenario in Taiwan with Russia is if they have some sort of a breakthrough in Ukraine and then start pushing to the Polish border. Like that, that would that would be alarming for us because there's not much we would do. The a, a scenario in Taiwan would suck out the oxygen in the room, so to speak in terms of U.S. commitments and firepower. Now, it would be largely, in the beginning, a naval battle, and it would seek to deny the Chinese access to the island. But we, as the, you know, the United States, have to deal with the tyranny of distance, right, in terms of the logistics and the resupply and things like that, where the Chinese have maybe a 70-mile strait that they have to get through. 
one advantage that we do have is there's only two or three months when they can get this thing um, off and kicking, and that's generally around April or May because of weather and and the you know the sea, and then in August. So I think the most, if they were to launch this this thing this year, the most likely time period would be in the April-May time frame. Let me play the devil's advocate for a moment, uh, looking at it as a perspective from the United States. Why get involved in a war with China? Let them have Taiwan. Why should we lose American lives over this? Because we have no choice. And the reason we have no choice is that Taiwan produces 60% of the world's semiconductors and over 90% of the most advanced ones. So just imagine a world where you can't get access to an iPhone. So when it breaks down, there's no replacement parts. You're talking, you know, five years of, um, you know, of us having to retool and rebuild manufacturing plants. Now, we started to do that in Arizona, but I, I think the capacity that we built with one plant is about 126th of the capacity that we'd have to replace in order to... Um, you know, replace the production that Taiwan Taiwan is responsible for. So it would be um, critical for not just us, but also the world. In addition, the cost of an assault on Taiwan, according to the National Security Council, would cost about, um, you know, a trillion dollars globally to the economic system. So, you know, if we weren't as concentrated in our need for semiconductors, you're right. Your point is a completely valid point. But, in, you know, unfortunately, um, if we didn't get involved, we would uh, have a significant economic issue for the United States. Wouldn't China keep it business as usual, or do you think they'd shut things down to get to us? Uh, well, I don't know about shut things down to to get to us. It wouldn't be like they would they would come to us, but there are certain semiconductors that Taiwan produces that the Chinese can't produce, right? Wow. They're highly advanced, proprietary. There's probably some defense applications. So imagine if the Chinese got control of that. They would, um, you know, if we kind of came to some sort of a peace afterward, they would have significant leverage over their ability to supply that to us to the point that it would be crippling for us um, economically. Why aren't we making these chips here, Sean? So we started to, but it's a little bit, It's well, two answers. So over the past two decades, in order to save money, everything or much of the production, productive capacity was outsourced to places like China, Shenzhen, um, and then Taiwan. Now, the U.S. passed the Chips and Science Act in August of 2022, so about a little over a year ago, which provided for $39 billion in subsidies uh, and a 25% tax credit to promote manufacturing at home, as well as $13 billion of investment in chip research. And in October of 2022, it also banned the export of advanced chips and chip-making gear to China. So it also kind of inadvertently gave China, China an incentive to potentially move into Taiwan to get that. Now, the problem is, is one of these semiconductor fabs takes, you know, many years to rebuild or to build. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, they're about 55 percent, um, you know, it's 55 percent more expensive to produce these chips in the United States than it is in Taiwan. So the U.S. has taken steps, but at this point, they're baby steps. And maybe in a decade, we'll have a little bit more 
freedom from this kind of crippling tie to our uh, major semiconductor chips, uh, but we're not there yet. All right, Sean, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back and chat more about this. I want to ask you how you think this war could unfold. We'll be back in a moment with Sean Patrick Hazlett. His website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. I'll tell you about his YouTube channel when we come back. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with Sean Patrick Hazlett. Sean, how would you envision a war with China unfolding? What would happen? So... You've already, I've already mentioned two items that you're starting to see. So rhetoric would amp up prior to these elections, and we talked about that a little bit. There's also the uh, aggressive and persistent reconnaissance. We talked about the spy balloons flying over. You're likely to see more of that. Then you would see something that the Chinese would declare as a military exercise, much like they did back in 2022 when Nancy Pelosi visited the island, or Congresswoman Pelosi. And so it'll start out as a military exercise that unfolds into a blockade. And that's significant because Taiwan imports nearly 97% of its energy, so it'll be particularly vulnerable mm-hmm. to that. And only in, the, in, in the China Sea? Uh, yeah, just around Taiwan. So they would just put a ring, like a literal ring around Taiwan on both the western coast and the eastern coast. And Taiwan only has about 200 days of stockpiles of gas, coal, and oil. So that's kind of how it would unfold. And then the Chinese might have a sort of a Gulf of Tonkin-style ruse that would likely set things off. So like a Chinese fishing vessel um, you know, gets targeted in some sort of a false flag. The immediate response, of course, is the United States would have, uh, you know, assets in the region and would probably send several uh, aircraft carrier battle groups to the region. But you would almost immediately see a, sign, a Chinese cyber campaign that would attack West Coast infrastructure. So usually these things, cyber attacks, are incremental because, you know, you don't want to wipe out the U.S. grid and, and cause a nuclear war in response, right? Right. So, so what has been observed, there was a report in the Washington Post recently that there was a campaign that was discovered called Volt Typhoon that was detected a year ago by the U.S. government. And in it, the Chinese appeared to have selected targets that would have would likely complicate a U.S. response to an invasion of Taiwan. So you're talking electric utilities in Hawaii, telecommunications in Guam, which is the closest U.S. territory to the Taiwan Strait, and other similar targets that would, you know, vastly complicate a U.S. response. Then there's also the possibility that you would see some industrial sabotage in the United States. So just to give you another data point, in the last year, more than 24,000 Chinese citizens have crossed the border from Mexico, more than in the preceding 10 years combined. Now, many of these people are simply looking for a better life in America, but a small minority could easily be potential saboteurs activated in the case of a Taiwan invasion. Sleeper cells. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm not saying they are, but, but, you know, I would be surprised if the Chinese didn't have that capability. And do we have that? Do we have that there? Uh, oh well, well in Taiwan we would certainly have um, you know people there that would that'd be able to advise, and we'd be able to su- send 
special forces almost immediately if they're not already there. I'm sure there's some you know CIA personnel and things like that. Now, if you're talking in China, um, the answer would very likely be yes as well. But that would only come into play if the crisis expanded beyond that kind of limited focus on Taiwan where things, you know, have, have the potential to spiral out of control. But what would happen after that, like once, you know, when we really know that the Chinese uh, were intent on seizing the island, you would see missile attacks on high-value targets on Formosa, the main Taiwanese island. China has about 600 ballistic and or cruise missile launchers. Now, they're not all opposite the strait, but a great deal of them are. And what that does is, you know, could cause chaos, destroy targets that they would need to take out. Then you would also likely have covert infiltration of Formosa by operatives, you know, and this is just an example of, for instance, hiding in shipping containers. Uh, if you look at a kind of a classic uh, shipping container ship, it would take about 30 hours to, to traverse the strait. So yeah. I would imagine some of those individuals would already, I mean, and I'm sure China already has assets on the island, just like we already have assets in China. And then the focus after that would be on the seizure of approximately 20 key beaches and landings, landing zones. So the thing that makes Taiwan very difficult uh, to take, in addition to crossing the strait and dealing with the maritime issues you have with large waves and, and getting your infrastructure onto the island, is it's also very mountainous terrain. So the Chinese would have to seize some targets from the inside, also bribe politi key politicians and things like that, which they already do, right? They fly them to mainland China and they do all sorts of things to um, kind of sweeten the pot. So whether or not that plays out, it, it all depends. But it's a matter of time. If China is able to seize the island before we're able to reinforce it, then things, things get increasingly bad for the United States. Could detente work at all, Sean? Uh, well, I don't think either side has been the best of actors, right? I mean, we do That's things right. that you know, kind of put egg in the... For instance, like the, the United States did not do a good job of diversifying its risk by you know concentrating the majority of the world's semiconductors. And this is not just a policy issue, but it's, you know, U.S.-led companies and, and things like that. So it just makes us particularly vulnerable. The other thing that the Chinese have done is they've engaged in what is termed gray zone warfare, where they you know, go just up to the line of what is considered an act of war and then stop. So if you take their bases and assets in the Spratly Islands, for instance, in the South China Sea, that's a perfect example of some of the things that they've been doing. And that's kind of how this thing would kick off. They would, you know, like I said, treat it as if they were running a, a, a naval exercise. And then by the time all their assets are in place, then, you know, the then the war would kick off. So, you know, could they be talked down? Yeah, I'm sure at the very beginning of the episode, right, there would be feverish diplomatic discussions and things like that. But just like hap what happened in Russia, Ukraine, right, once you put that many assets in place, you're committed, right? We, did, we had the same sort of diplomatic activity with Russia before they invaded Ukraine. And once Putin had 150,000 troops in place, right, it's just kind of like the trains in World War I. They're already set to go, and there's really no 
no no holding back or or reversing the the course of history. Tell us about Taiwan prior to World War II when Japan took it over. Well, at the time it wasn't populated by uh, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's forces, right? That were that fled after World War II when Mao took over China. So it was a completely different sort of situation where, and they were had less ability to defend themselves, right? So they weren't armed by the United States government over the last several decades. They weren't trained by the United States government, at least not in appreciable numbers. So, you know, there's a fundamental difference between what Taiwan is today and what it was back then. Does China believe it's theirs? Absolutely. In fact, Xi's comments at the beginning of the year just said that reunification is inevitable. And we haven't helped matters by pursuing a policy of strategic ambiguity, right? So Taiwan doesn't have a slot at the United Nations, right? Um, You know, our current president has openly said that we would defend Taiwan if attacked, which, by the way, I think is an honest answer, right? But before that, there was always this you know, not fear, but this policy of strategic ambiguity where we didn't overtly say or recognize Taiwan, at least overtly, as an independent nation. Are we on the verge of a World War III? We look at Russia and Ukraine. We look at Israel and its situation. All we need now is China to get involved in Taiwan. And we've got uh, we've got World War III here, Sean. Yeah, I think that's part of their calculus, there being the Chinese which is if they ever intend to seize uh, Taiwan by force, next year is kind of the golden year for them. You know, if you'll recall, at least in, I think, last year, their population started to decline, and their population's not getting any younger. I believe, you know, by, you know, over the the decade, it's increasingly becoming an older population. So they're going to have you know, an issue where they're not going to be able to supply the soldiers in appreciable numbers in the next decade or so. So if Xi wants to kind of exercise this option, next year is probably the best year to do it. Does Taiwan have any assets to defend itself? Yeah, sure, sure. It's got, uh, you know, some modern aircraft, uh, not as many as the Chinese. It has about 169,000 troops. Uh, and there are, you know, they're going to, they also have, you know, tunnels in the mountains that are robust and can be defended. Um, most of their air assets are going to be on the eastern side of the island, which is separated by mountains. And, you know, because traditionally they expected the Chinese to come in on the western side of the island. But that, you know, if you look at recent naval exercises, that isn't necessarily the case. So they have plenty of modern weapons, but the problem with the Chinese is they just have uh, superior numbers. Now, what the, what the Taiwanese have is they have really rugged, rough terrain. They have a very narrow window through which the Chinese can attack. And they have us over the horizon that's willing to come to their defense. But if the Chinese do it quick, things get really difficult for us.
It's intriguing, to, no doubt. The whole thing is intriguing. And in terms of China's moves first, as a chess piece on a board, who will? It, what would they do first? Try to attack Taiwan, or what would they do? So they're likely to start with a naval exercise, right, to make it look like it's inert and it's, there's no threat. And then as they get all their assets in place, then you have like a Gulf of Tonkin sort of scenario where, you know, they claim that the Taiwanese fired on one of their vessels. And then things start to escalate. That's when there's feverish diplomacy. And once I think the Chinese assets are in place and they begin the attack, which is with kind of a, these missile strikes and, um, you know, saboteurs inside uh, you know, Taiwan, Formosa proper, then I think the, the, the diplomatic phase ends. And then hopefully someone in the decision-making loop in the United States had already sent carriers the instant that they had these military exercises. But it's, you know, it's going to be classic gray zone warfare, right? They're just going to kind of come to the very edge and make it look ambiguous enough that we hesitate. If the Taiwanese had a chance to vote on China being their country, how do you think that vote would go? Uh, they, they would vote in favor of not going to the Chinese. I think the last survey I've seen was, I think, 80, 86 to 87 percent. So it's um, huge. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. After after what the Chinese did with Taiwan or with uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, yeah. There's not a huge willingness for the Taiwanese to reunite with the Chinese. Is Hong Kong a little more stable now than it was a few years ago? Sure, but that's after you know, the Chinese cracked down uh, and kind of restricted speech and um, you know kind of got control of the political apparatus of power. So it's more stable, but it's more stable because there's more uh, Chinese control of the situation. Is this all about greed, Sean? I think it's about pride in terms from the Chinese side, right? I think the Chinese, you know, historically for, you know, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, Taiwan has been part of China. And I think this is, you know, like Putin and Ukraine, Xi looks at this as his legacy. And Xi, by the way, is the first person since Mao that has a third five-year term. So I think this is something, and he's publicly stated that he intends to have Taiwan reunited with China by 2049. So like I said, if he chooses to take the aggressive route, this is the time. What does your gut tell you? My gut tells me that if we start seeing, um, you know, increased activity, surveillance, and the DPP wins the election, I'd give it a 40 to 50% chance that Xi goes in. Now, Donald Trump has always said it wouldn't happen under his administration. What do you think of that? I think I think that's true, but I don't think that's. Uh, but I think it's because he tended to be a wild card, right? So any long-standing U.S. policy that we had followed for you know 
the last 60 years. With Trump, it was all, you know, it was all it was all up to chance, right? So, for instance, I don't think the Chinese were expecting a tariff, right? When when Donald Trump was there, and um, the Biden administration has continued to kind of increase or to increase the distance between the United States and China. There just seems to be a a change in overall policy because. You know, if you look at this Thucydides trap, right, when you had the emergence of Athens in the Peloponnesian Wars against the dominant power at the time, Sparta, these things tend to happen when you have a rising power. The incumbent power um, has to help or has to manage this rise. And it's almost as if the Chinese rise, while initially was beneficial to both parties, is now seeming to be a little bit more unstable than many policymakers had had initially thought. How do people see you on YouTube, Sean? Oh, so they find me at Through a Glass Darkly with Sean. Through a Glass Darkly? Yep, with Sean. Okay, great. We're going to come back in a moment and take phone calls. I want to ask you about our remote viewer guest, Lynn Buchanan, who years ago saw something very ominous, and I want to get your take on that as well. We'll be back in a moment with Sean Patrick Hazlitt and your calls on Coast to Coast AM. 